verses 13 through 17. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. Now who is there to now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord honor sorry, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Thanks, man. Appreciate that, Mike. This afternoon, uh, Elena and Reed were playing church together and uh, they went upstairs into Reed's closet and got uh, this little four or five, I think the size is, a blue blazer that belonged to the Alexander boys that now is in Reed's closet. And, they, and Elena put that on because Reed was going to be the song leader first. And I'm overhearing them and I look up and Elena stands up. She goes, good evening, church. <laughs> you ready for this? Her next sentence was, for the past two weeks, we have been talking about the gospel of God on the earth. <laughs> I realized I've got to change my introduction a little bit. You know, this whole good evening church for the past couple of weeks uh, narrative has got to get. Whew. Um, that was her best baritone voice and she did a good job. So it kind of went downhill from there when Moses and Noah became brothers. And that's where it went. So it was like, well, it's. It's about all the farther we need to go with that. So, all right, I'll try to change it. Let's let's do it this way. Up to this point, that's a little different. Um, We're in part number five of our series on elect exiles. We're talking about how to navigate um, life as a Christian in an increasingly non-Christian or or unchristian culture. As our uh, American Western culture is continuing to, to shape that way, that it's becoming less and less favorable towards the concept of Christianity, we're asking ourselves, well, how do we navigate and live that? And up to this point in our readings in First Peter, we've noticed that Peter has only been speaking about two different groups of people. Peter uses the language like us and them. He uses language like believer and non-believer. Um, And usually up until this point in chapter three, he has been instructing the group of the us who he's writing to on how to relate to the group that is called them, especially when them are making it hard on the believers. That's kind of the, the, the portrait of the book that there's a group of people that are in the culture that are making it difficult on believers. So there's been two major groups that have been going about the course of this book. And so at first glance, when Michael's reading the scripture for you, it might appear that Peter is continuing with that same pattern. But if you come back and read it very carefully, you're going to notice that there's not two groups in our text tonight. There's not just an us and a them. There's actually three groups in this text. There is a them. You see that he says that there is a them that's going to cause suffering, that's going to slander Christians, that's going to revile Christians. He says that there's a you or an us that is the believers in Christ, those that are um, having a shared hope in Jesus Christ and His return. 
But there's a third group. And if you can find this group in verse 15, when he says, be ready to make a defense to, here's the third group, anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that's in you with meekness and fear. There's the third group. This group is a little bit different. This group is actually a seeking group of people. It's different than those that are causing the harm to believers. In fact, those that are causing harm to the believers, this group that is um, seeking to find out why you have a hope is watching how believers are handling the suffering that they're enduring. Do you see the third group? We've got them that cause suffering, believers that are enduring that, and a third group that's going to ask you for a reason of why you have hope in you, especially amidst these circumstances. At the same, t- at the same time, up until this point, much of what Peter has said would sound incredibly unreasonable to a non-believer. If you were not a believer in Christ, if you did not share a Christian worldview, if, if uh, you didn't make sense of the world or the way that the Bible kind of puts it together, a lot of the statements that Peter has said so far might not ring up as reasonable to a non-believer. You know, he says the idea of overcoming suffering is by anchoring into an eternal hope that's beyond this place. It, the other way you overcome is by obedience to the truth and submission. These are not normal responses in our world. And with that, many have rightly asked this question who are not believers. Is Christianity reasonable? How would you answer that question? Is Christianity a reasonable worldview? Is it reasonable to live life as a Christian? Is it a reasonable thing? And so the text tonight has an incredible assumptions that are made by Peter that don't automatically sound reasonable. Listen to verse 14. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. That's a major assumption. Do you believe it? That's a major assumption, though. If you suffer for doing what is right, you're going to be blessed. Not everybody believes that. Look in verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. That's also a pretty big assumption. That it's better to suffer for doing good, even if it's God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. It's better for that. That's also a major assumption. There's some commands in here that are kind of strange. In fact, Peter tells the believers here to respond to people that are seeking with a reasonable response. But he says, do it with gentleness and meekness or respect. That's not very reasonable. To defend your position with a gentle strength, and the kind of respect that comes by honoring somebody. That isn't always reasonable. But right square in the middle of our text tonight, Peter says something. He tells us to have prepared an intelligent, reasonable, logical answer for the hope that lies within us. That we as believers in Christ should have a very logical, um, reasonable explanation for why we have hope. That it shouldn't come across as just an emotional feeling or just a, I promise it's true. It actually should have intelligent reasoning behind it. That it makes sense that you have a hope that's in you. Good, Good thing for us that our text also tells us how to get that. And So tonight, three observations for you from our text. Number one... We're going to see the seeds of reason. 
What the seeds that need to be planted in us to have reason. Number two, we'll see how that reason grows or the growth of reason. And finally, we'll spill out with the last thought that is the response with reason or how we have reason. Let's get started here, first of all, with the seeds of reason. What really uh, begins to plant in us the need to be reasonable with our faith? You know, children very young, I told you, you know, a funny story about Elena and, and, and our kids go back to Bible class and they begin learning about God. And if they've been raised in the pews and raised in a home that goes to church, they can oftentimes begin absorbing their religion very, very early before it becomes reasonable to them, before they can logically understand all that they're doing. So what are the seeds that require us to be reasonable with our faith? What Peter presents to us is that the seed of all reason is actually the skeptics. People that don't really agree with us. People that doubt what you believe. People that press on you to say, hey, what you're saying and what you're thinking doesn't make sense to me. Those skeptics actually are what provoke us to become reasonable with our faith. Let's start in looking at this group of them. Peter tells us that these, this group of them causes suffering for us. But how do they do it? In verse 14, he says that they use tactics like intimidation. He says in verse 14, it doesn't translate well in um, the English Bible, but it says this in verse 14 in, in the Greek, it bears out to say that you and I, um, yeah, down in chapter 3, verse 14, that we should have no fear of the terror they're trying to strike in us. That, that, that's, it just says, have no fear of them. But that phrase, them, actually encapsulates this idea that the them are trying to, trying to strike terror in the minds of believers. So there's an, a, a sense of intimidation, that we should not be afraid of their attempt to cause us terror, to cause us fear. In verse 16, he says that they'll use the tactic of slander. This means to speak down to people in a hostile way to try to make other people feel less than you, um, even if there's no good reason about it. That's what slander is. To look at somebody, to speak down your nose at them, to speak at them in a hostile way, in an attempt to make them feel ashamed, um, foolish, ignorant for who they are or what they've done. And so the them group here that is causing suffering is going to come to Christians and not just seek to intimidate them, but also look at their faith, look at their beliefs, their dogmas, and, and speak down to them as though it were ignorant. That's what it means to slander. And then also he says in verse 16, they'll use the tactic of reviling. This means to criticize somebody, but not just in a um, subtle kind of passive way. This means to criticize in an abusive and an angry manner. In fact, to revile somebody means to come to them and say, the good that you're doing is actually evil. You, you, know, you think it's good, you think you're helping, but what you're doing is evil and wrong and you should stop. That's what reviling is. That's, that's what it means to revile somebody. Now, um, intimidation, slander, reviling, this might not sound like the typical suffering that you would think of in first century Christianity. If you've kind of maybe heard the horror stories of being burned at the stake or dipped in hot oil or being a martyr in the Colosseum, things of that nature. Um, those are some of the stories that really catch the headlines of Christian suffering. But for the most part, this is overwhelmingly the most common way that Christians suffered in the first century. Was, the persecution was intimidation, slander, reviling, and it still is today. It's the way that we're suffering in our world right now. And this suffering, 
while it doesn't appear to be as grotesque or maybe intense, is incredibly effective. Massively effective. So put in your mind a person who has maybe, ra- maybe, um, maybe been converted or raised in Christianity, and all of a sudden they've got some skeptics around them, some people that doubt. And they're using tactics like intimidation, like uh, you think this is what it really is, but it's not. They try to strike some fear in them that what they really believe is a lie. Maybe they use things like slander, where they're ridiculing them, mocking them, talking down to them. And then you start using tactics like reviling, where you say, hey, you know, this good that you're trying to do is actually hurting people. It's harming people, which is the spin story of today about Christianity. So all that starts happening, what you see is that it's incredibly effective for somebody who isn't grounded in reasoning about their faith that, hey, I'm kind of being outcast here. Like all of them are making me feel like I'm the wrong guy. Do you see how this is actually a very, very effective tool of suffering in the world? This kind of suffering is very effective. But here's the deal in the case of Christ. It doesn't just serve Satan's cause, this kind of suffering. This kind of suffering that critiques you and criticizes you also serves the cause of Christ. It serves both groups that are left in our dialogue tonight, both the us, the believers, and then also the seekers. But how does it do it? So that's the seed of, of, of reasoning that, we get, that skeptics are going to come into our life. They're going to doubt what we're doing. That's the seed of it. But how does it grow? And it grows through the suffering that we see happening. You see, suffering in anything demands that you ask this question. Is what I'm doing right now that I'm suffering for, is it worth it? Anytime you suffer, it demands that you ask the question, should I keep doing this? Is this that I'm suffering for really worth it? And once you ask yourself that question, which, by the way, parents raising kids, our kids are going to have to ask this question to themselves. Is Christianity worth it? Is faith worth it? They've got to ask that question. And once they ask that question, all of us should ask this question. You will have to then reason yourself through to an answer of either yes or no. You will have to use your mind, your logic, and your reasoning to think about Christianity and say, okay, I'm experiencing some suffering now, and is Christianity worth it? Is it worth it to suffer for this? And as you reason through that, you'll see that it actually serves you. Most of us have not really even experienced this kind of suffering. Um, And it wasn't until recently that we didn't even see it on our horizon in our culture. Being a Christian in our culture didn't actually require for the last 50 to 75 years a lot of explanation. In most of society, it didn't require a lot of people to really explain it. In fact, um, it didn't require much defense either. It wasn't really challenged. And so it wasn't really challenged by the question, is Christianity reasonable? Because our culture just said, of course it was. The vast majority of people were Christians, and we all just collectively assumed that Christianity is reasonable. And so none of us really had to defend that. This comfort in our culture allowed the kingdom of Christ to do great work, massive good work. Um, But also, there were a couple drawbacks to this comfort. First of all, because of our comfort, we never really were demanded to articulate with clarity our beliefs. And so our beliefs became not learned, but assumed. From generation to generation, what we began to do is assume that our kids will get it because 
Well, everybody gets it. Every matter of culture is just Christian, right? We all understand Christianity, and no one's really saying, does this make sense? Is it reasonable? Because everybody's a Christian. Even those that aren't, maybe the good Christians would call themselves a Christian and wouldn't attack us for it. And so our beliefs became not learned or convicted, but just assumed. Now, the second problem was this. The second thing we did was we didn't have to fight for or contend for our hope. Because the Christian hope was just kind of saturated into our culture. We didn't have to sink our teeth into it and defend it and back it up and say, this is what I live for. And so we eventually lost it. Beliefs became assumed and hope became lost. And eventually that lost hope was replaced with other hopes in the Christian faith in our culture. Hopes that were good things. Things like having a family. That's a great hope. If you don't have a family yet, that is a fantastic thing to hope for. And I think you should hope for that, to have a family, to have a spouse, to have children. That's beautiful. To have career success became a great hope in our culture. That I would have a longevity in a career and be financially stable and be able to send my kids to college and retire at the right age and be able to have that. That became a great hope, and you should have that hope. You should work for that. Having a nation uh, be what it's supposed to be was a great hope, and it still should be a hope, that one that we should engage. Social standing, being seen as um, a, a pillar in the community and being seen as respectable was a hope, and it's a great hope that we should have. All of us should be working towards being respected in our communities. These are all great hopes. But our, rel- our relative comfort has allowed us to take these hopes and replace them with the, replace the Christian hope with them as our ultimate hope. You see, suffering is the ultimate test to determine what your true hope is. You want to find out what true hope is when you lose something, see how you respond. If you lose something and it doesn't really bother you, or you're kind of like, eh, that's, that's fine, no big deal, then you'll see that uh, maybe that wasn't such a hope to you. But if you lose something and your world literally crumbles, it's evidence that that thing was your ultimate hope. You see, what we've done in replacing the Christian hope is we have stopped asking ourselves to say, is the Christian hope reasonable and should we live for it? Uh, At this point, I'm going to again press upon you, although I already have in this series, I'm going to press again on you to ask you this very serious question. Can you articulate your Christian hope? That if somebody were to ask you to give a reason for what you hope for right now, can you sit down in a logical, reasonable way and say, this is my hope and this is why I have it. This is the earnest expectation that I believe will come to pass at some point in history. I'm looking forward to this time and I'm living my life for this to happen someday. Can you articulate that? You see, uh, just as a quick reminder, remember Peter presents this to us in chapter 1, that the Christian hope is distinct. And in this time where our culture is shifting, where things are becoming less favorable towards Christianity, the great opportunity is for the Christian voice, the Christian hope, to come to the surface and be as clear as it's ever been in our culture. Peter says that the Christian hope is that someday we long for and believe with the fullest expectation that there will be, there will be a place that we will reside in where there will be no more of what we call sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more disease. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain and sorrow. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more problems. 
There will be a world like that. We are longing for that world and we believe that that world will come when all the wrongs will finally be made right. And the second thing is, in this perfect place, we will become what we ultimately hope for, perfect people. We will shed this immortality. We will shed this sin nature in us. We will get rid of all that weighs us down, the sin that's so close to us that ensnares us. And there will be a time when there will be nothing in my life that I'm ashamed of. There will be a time when there's nothing in my life when I'm dwelling in this place of perfection where I too can exist without sin. That is the hope that we long for as Christians, that we believe in. Now here's the question. Is that a reasonable thing to hope for? Is it logical? Or is that fairy tale? Is it logical that that is a, is that a reasonable hope? And I present to you that my answer is yes for two reasons. Number one, I believe the fact of it. The facts bear out. Um, let me just give you a couple things. I believe there's evidence that points us to this reality in our world. First of all, I would say that our own hearts are some of the greatest pieces of evidence to this. In fact, people that aren't Christians are borrowing have truths from Christianity and make it their hope. Where does all social justice in our world come from, whether it's Christian or not? Social justice comes from the belief that the world is not what it's supposed to be and there's something better that it should be. There's people out there that don't believe that children should hunger. That's beautiful. There are people that are out there that, don't, that think everybody should act, have access to clean water. There are people that are out there that think that gender should not be suppressed or hurt or that abuse victims should be cared for. All this social justice is screaming the part of Christian hope that says there's a perfect world that we're longing for. Do you see the human heart wants that? Everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, says, I believe that there should be a world of perfection. Our heart longs for that. And the other side of that is our own heart longs for perfection. I've told you all this several times before, but one of the most popular categories in book sales today is the self-help section. Over 1.2 million books right now are on Amazon.com available for you to make yourself a better person. Seven steps to make more friends, nine steps to get rich, eight steps to lose weight. There are all kinds of self-help books to improve you. Do you see what the human heart is screaming? Christian or not, we need a perfect place and we need to be perfect people. So I would present to you that the Christian hope is very reasonable because the human heart bears it out. But number two, the world shows it. Number three, as we've talked about before, the resurrection of Jesus Christ seals it for me that there is going to be a time when God makes all things new again. And we've talked about the, uh, the resurrection before you can find an older podcast. The other thing I would say about the Christian hope being reasonable is this, that out of all philosophies in the world, out of all the religions in the world, the hope of Christianity is the most functional hope in the world. You see, this desire for a perfect place and to become perfect people is so incredibly functional for your life. Number one, it motivates you to bring it. If you long for a place where the world is perfect and you're perfect, it's going to stir a fire in you to participate to be active in social justice, to be active in personal sanctification and transformation. If you've tasted what the Bible calls the heavenly gift, you will be hungry to have that. And you'll pray, the pray, you'll pray what Jesus told us to pray when He said, Father, let Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You'll be hungry for that. You see, heaven motivates us, but heaven also calms us. Because when we experience injustice, 
or we're exposed for not being perfect and we're shameful for that, we can rest in the resurrection of Jesus knowing that someday it's going to be right. Do you see how functional the Christian hope is? That it'll motivate you and calm you all in the same moment. So, how do we respond then? Our responsive reason then must be sensible. When you and I develop an unshakable hope that is the distinct Christian hope above all other hopes, you and I will then be able to live out the imperatives that we find in this text. So an imperative is when the Bible presses on you that you should do something. You ought to do this. And there are four important imperatives in this text in verses 15 and 16. Um, One of them speaks to how you interact with those that cause you suffering. The two in the middle speak to you on how you secure your hope and your faith. And the last one speaks to how you interact with those who are seeking. Let's look at the first one when he says in verse, um, yeah, verse 14, have no fear of them. That's the first imperative. When you have an unshakable hope, you'll have the ability to have no fear. He's saying, do not be in awe of or revere or bow down out in submission to those that are trying to strike terror in you that what you're doing is not right. Have no fear. You see, their purpose in slander and reviling those that are causing you suffering is to cause you to buckle in fear. They, like all people, people that cause Christians to suffer for their beliefs, like all people, hear me, want affirmation for what they're doing in their life, that it's right. Everybody wants that. What I'm doing, I want to know that it's right. Okay? And their only source, because they're not connected to any divine source, their only source is to have other people verify that they're right by doing exactly what they're doing. You see, when when people who don't believe in Christianity see people living as Christians, it strikes a fear in them that they might not be doing what is right. And so they've got to have humans conform to what they're doing to have affirmation that what they believe is right. You and I don't require that. In fact, we have affirmation that is above human behavior. So whether you believe what I'm saying or not, I can have conviction from God Almighty that this is true. And so in search for affirmation, all they have to do is, all they're looking to do is intimidate you into submission to make sure that they feel okay that what they're doing is right. Have no fear of them. The second thing he says to us is do not be troubled. This means that don't let your mind be unsettled. Don't get stirred up and lose your calmness. How often do we see this, right? I think we should say maybe like, don't lose your mind with your keyboard on the internet, maybe to Christians today. Like, like, just relax. When somebody attacks Christianity, don't lose your mind. Don't don't freak out. Don't become so unsettled that you just get so worked up that you've got to put them down and you resort to tactics that they use. Just don't be troubled. In fact, you ought to resort to your hope and the confidence that you have in it for your foundation And remind yourself constantly of the reliability of the Christian hope. Constantly. Now the third thing he says that we ought to sanctify Jesus Christ as the Lord in our hearts. Or honor Him as Lord. This means that we ought to continue to learn about the person of Jesus Christ. If He's not there yet, um, the, the language of this verb means that it's presently going on, but it's actively going to continue. That means that you and I should be continuing in the process of sanctifying Jesus in our hearts means setting Him apart above all, above all else in our hearts. That means that everyone in this room hasn't fully done this yet. That we should be partaking in this. That we should be looking into the life of Jesus, understanding Him to be the true Christ, the true Savior. And as you grow, 
and your understanding of him as Savior, naturally he will grow in his role as your Lord. When he grows, and when you grow in your understanding of him as Savior, there's a natural correlation to him becoming your Lord. You'll trust him more. You see, he won't become your Lord until you understand he's your Savior, until you understand who he is. And when you set him above all else in your life, all else in your life will become settled. When you set him above all else that's going on in your life, everything else, all your relationships, all of your challenges, all of your problems, all your sufferings will begin to find the right place in your life. But he's got to be set apart. And the final thing he tells us to do, the final imperative is this, that you and I need to be prepared to answer. But he gives us a clarification on who we answer to. You see, there's a big group of them that cause suffering. But then he says, be prepared to answer those who ask you. You see, the Christian position oftentimes in evangelism is not so much knocking down doors, but answering inquiry. Answering inquiry. That means that we live in a way, like Colossians 4 says, with wisdom, redeeming the time towards those who are outside of us, so that when they ask questions of us, then we have the readiness to answer those questions. But our life is the, what cultivates those questions. And so he limits this. He says, be prepared to answer only to those who are seeking to understand your hope. That means that you and I must develop an intelligent, reasonable, logical response. An explanation of your hope and why it's reasonable. And when you answer, he says that there's a quality to that. He says, do it with gentleness or gentle strength like meekness, but also with respect. And that word respect means that you ought to think of yourself not as the owner of the company, but as an employee or a representative of the owner. So you answer people as if you're speaking for Jesus, who really is the CEO, not you. So you have reverence and respect and honor of Jesus that he's the one in charge and you're speaking for him in that moment. Let me give you just one practical advice on this. One, one bit about how you do this. If somebody actually were to ask you, like, okay, you're a Christian and you're taking some heat right now in the media, maybe in our office. Well, what is it about your hope? Let me give you some advice. Listen and ask questions way more than you talk. I would encourage you to ask several open-ended and then oftentimes leading questions to people. Um, Francis Schaeffer was a great thinker, um, very conservative sort of uh, Christian thinker. He had, he had a think tank in France for a long time. I believe he, I think he just passed away. And one time he was asked in this open forum when they said, okay, uh, if you had one hour with a non-Christian, he was probably one of the world-leading philosophers of Christianity at this time in the 80s. They said, what would you say if you had one hour with a non-believer he said, I would listen for 55 minutes and I would answer for five. And his point was this, that when people are coming to you, they have their own questions. And if you'll be a good listener, if you'll ask good questions, if you'll seek not just to spew your own beliefs, but to understand where they're coming from, their doubts, their scars, their, their trouble with Christianity, if you understand those from your understanding of Scripture and your experience, you'll begin to answer to them. Do you see how that works? Use questions and use listening to do that. And when people hear that you have a reasonable response to living out the Christian hope, they may misunderstand you, they may disagree with you, but they'll know for certain why you believe what you believe, 
And even though that they understand that, you may actually even suffer for that. But that shouldn't shock us, really, should it? See, one of the cool things that Peter does in his letter is he did this in chapter 2. He does this in chapter 3. He's going to tell you some things to do, some imperatives. And then he backs that up at the end of each chapter, chapter 2 and chapter 3, with an anchoring to Jesus Christ. When he tells us to submit in chapter 2, he says, yeah, follow in the footsteps just like Jesus. In chapter 3, he's going to tell us that we might suffer like, uh, we might suffer for our beliefs, but so did Jesus. So when he says in verse 17 that it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, how does Peter know that? Is it just an axiom that he believes, a proverb of this new philosophy? No, this is not just a word parable. This is life. He knows this because the one who gave you the hope proved this to be true, that it is better to suffer for doing good than evil. You see, no other philosophy or religion can back up their claims with not just a man's words, but a man's life. You see, Jesus spoke boldly about what he believed about life to be true and backed it up by giving his own life to give you access to it. He suffered the ultimate cost for what is good. And in doing so, he gave you the most reasonable thing in the world to hope in. That one day, although he has come, he will return. And when he returns, we have a hope that he will make not only the place that we live, but us who dwell perfect. If you want to join in that hope, you come as we stand and sing.